Well, we are in the book of Ruth, and you may want to turn to chapter 4 in the book of Ruth. Even though we're going to be finishing the story of Ruth today, we're going to spend two more weeks on Ruth, kind of looking at lessons from the book, and also uh, we're going to take a week uh, that will be Palm Sunday to take a look at Jesus in the book of Ruth, and how the different characters really make a very interesting portrayal of Jesus So we're finishing the story, but not the series, is what I'm telling you. Um, But you will get to finally hear the end of the story of Ruth, if you have been waiting in anticipation. If you've missed any of these Sundays, let's go back and kind of catch you up on the story. The story begins in the time of Judges, the time of of, uh, Israel, where they don't have a king, where they're in the land, but uh, the people keep rebelling, so God rises up judges. There's a whole book of the Bible comes right before the book of Ruth called Judges that goes along with this period. And it's a very rough time for Israel. Uh, There's not a lot of wealth in the land. There's a lot of people uh, not doing great things, worshiping all kinds of other gods. That's why God has to keep rising up judges like Deborah and like Gideon to keep clearing the land of Israel. And in this dark time, there, there becomes a famine, probably a famine uh, in, in Judges. It sometimes happens that God causes a famine on the land because the people are being so uh, terrible and turning away from God so much. And in the middle of that, this family, led by a man named Elimelech, decides to get out of there, to get out of Israel. And so they go to a land called Moab. If you were going to pick a land to go to, it wouldn't be Moab as a Jew. Because Moab was hated. They were people who had caused a lot of problems for Israel in the past. You were not supposed to associate with people from Moab. You were not supposed to marry people from Moab. You were supposed to leave Moab alone. And yet that's where he goes. He goes with his wife and two sons who have Moabite names. His two sons take Moabite wives. And it seems like they're pretty settled and not going anywhere. But tragedy strikes in Moab. And both Elimelech and his two sons die. And we've been wrestling with this the the whole book. uh, Understanding how women could not fend for themselves in this time. They could not do a lot of business. They could not do a lot of work on their own. And so, for these women, a husband and two sons, two other husbands dying is a death sentence. Without a male heir, there's no one to back them up. No one standing in their corner when they go through their lives, and so they have nothing. And they decide, hearing that the famine has ended in Israel, to return home. Home to Israel. And and the daughters who are Moabites have a choice to make. Do they go with Naomi back to Israel, or do they go back to their families in Moab? And and one of the sisters, or one of the sister-in-laws, the daughter-in-laws, Named Orpah goes home. But Ruth makes the commitment to stay with Naomi. So they go back with with little hope. In fact, Naomi wants to change her name from pleasant, which is what Naomi means, to change it to the word bitter, Mara. Change my name because I'm no longer pleasant because God has dealt so poorly with me. And the question of the book is, how has God dealt with them? And so to survive, Ruth decides to go gleaning. To go to a field, to the parts of the field that were left for the poor to be able to harvest. And to collect so that they could survive. And she just happens upon the field of this man, Boaz. 
Boaz, we learn, is a worthy man. He is a person who prays a blessing upon his uh, workers, who uh, serves God and tries to be a blessing to others and extends this great kindness to Naomi. And we find out that Boaz is actually a family member and could potentially act as a redeemer. Meaning two things. One, as a redeemer, as a distant relative, he had the opportunity to buy the land from Naomi so that the land could stay in the family. But also he had the opportunity, he was not required, but had the opportunity to marry Ruth, the Moabite, in order that they might have a son who could carry on the family name and who could take care of the property and could take care of his mother and grandmother as he got older. And so in the middle of the night, at the end of the gleaning season, at the end of the harvest, where Naomi and Ruth know that they don't have food upcoming, in the middle of the night, Ruth goes and sees this man Boaz and suggests to him that perhaps he might act as their redeemer. He might marry her and buy the land. It's an outside chance. She goes in the middle of the night knowing that he probably won't do it, but wanting him to be able to say no without having any kind of ridicule or anything to his reputation. And Boaz says to her in the middle of the night that he will do so, but that there is another redeemer closer. There's a relative closer that has more of a right to be able to do this. And so Ruth goes home to Naomi and tells her what's happened. And Naomi says, today he will take care of this. He won't let the sun go down before he deals with this issue. And so we enter chapter 4, where we see how Boaz is going to handle this. So starting in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. The widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. We'll stop there for now. This is a time where there are no clocks. So if you want to have a meeting with somebody, you can't arrange a real specific time to meet with them. There's also not really contracts. Lawyers and court systems are not real developed in this time. So if you want to get a business deal done, and you want to meet somebody to get that business deal done, what do you do? The answer is the gate. The gate to the city that everyone has to pass through on their way to work at some point in time. 
uh, is where you go. And you know in the morning that there's going to be a certain kind of time where people are going through. In fact, gates in this time, from what we can see from archaeology, had benches all along the walls right around the gate to do business just as this. And there's no contracts in this day. So what do you do to make arrangements? You have to have witnesses. Apparently there are elders, there are leaders, probably the heads of households in the family, like Elimelech and like Boaz, who can gather to make decisions and everyone else around acts as witnesses. That's the gate system. Even into the New Testament, when we have more judges for the Roman people, they typically set up their judge's seat, called a bima seat, in the middle of the court square or by the gate. And so Boaz goes there knowing that probably the Redeemer is going to come through and knowing that he's probably going to be able to talk to this person and get this deal done there. And sure enough, he's right. The unnamed Redeemer, the one closer than Boaz in the family, walks through. And he invites him to sit down, calls him friend. Apparently they know each other, though the name of the person is not given in the text. And he gets elders of the city and explains the situation. Hey, no, Naomi is selling her land. Apparently, Naomi still has the rights to her land. But she probably has no way to do anything with it in this society. So it's just sitting there, not being used. And so he explains the situation, and, and the man says, yeah, <coughs> I'll redeem the land. And then Boaz adds the little detail about Ruth. Now, what's interesting about this is that actually, this man legally doesn't have any responsibility for Ruth. Uh, according to the Old Testament scriptures and the laws we have about these things, he doesn't have to marry Ruth. But it seems like it would be expected in that day that if you're going to buy the land, you have to take care of the people. And so for this man, the deal changes with that information. See, if he buys the land, if he just acts as redeemer of the land, then guess what? He gets wealthy. Because that land goes into his part of the family and it stays there. But if he buys the land and then marries Ruth so that she can have a son and Elimelech's name continues in the family, then actually that part of land that he's buying doesn't stay within his family. He perpetuates it in the larger family, but he doesn't get wealthy on it. The question is, is this going to be an expansion of his estate or is this charity work? And when he finds out that it's charity work, he doesn't want to do it. Why? Uh, he says that it would impair his inheritance. Maybe it was going to be too much of an expense. That might be a difficult thing for him to, to do. But if there's not the benefit of being able to keep it long term, the cost just doesn't make sense. Could be because he's already married and he would have to take on a second wife that he knows that would be a problem. In the, in the Bible... Uh, anytime there's second wives, it doesn't work out. It just normally doesn't. You can, if you're married, you can imagine that, right? Just one spouse is enough. Start adding two, we get complicated. Um, so it could be that he understands that. Could understand that he already has a son to take care of his inheritance, and he doesn't want to have fighting with another son. Whatever the reason, the text doesn't actually criticize this man. I hope you understand that. I've heard sermons where this man is, is put down like such a bad person in the, in the story. Or Orpah, the, the sister who goes home, the people really rail against Orpah. But you know what? They do what's expected. 
They'd do what anybody would do. The point is not that this man's a bad man. The point is, do you understand how much Boaz is willing to sacrifice for this family? The amazing nature of Ruth's commitment to Naomi is shown in Orpah's uh, going home. And here we see how wonderful it is what Boaz is about to do because this other family member is not willing to do it. So here, let's continue. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off a sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are the witnesses this day that I have bought bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are the witnesses this day. Now this is a weird, a weird thing. I mean, this whole thing about the shoes, really, we don't quite know what's going on here. This is an ancient tradition. The time of the judges would have been about a thousand years before the birth of Christ. So about 3,000 years ago. And and we just don't quite understand what's going on here. Apparently shoes were used in transactions in that day. Um, You could have a shoe and say, hey, I got this person's shoe. We made a deal. Uh, I guess. I don't understand really. The other thing that we know is that when when you measured off land... You measure it off based on your steps. So however, much, however far you could step in a certain period of time, that was how you tended to measure off land. And then they would build rock structures to sort of section off fields or section off land. And so when you got the shoe, you got the measuring apparatus for the land that you bought. So you could always test to make sure that somebody was being honest by measuring with somebody with about the same shoe size and about the same stride. That's as far as we can understand what's going on here in this tradition. Even even in the text, it says, now this was the custom in former times. So the author of the text is having to explain this to people because apparently by the time it's even written, they don't even do this anymore. Why all these details? Why, Why tell us all about the gate and why tell us all about the former customs and the shoe and all that stuff? I mean, for, for one thing, it's just good storytelling, right? Isn't a story more interesting when you get some of those details? But second of all, I think you get to see really the worthiness of Boaz. How honorable of a man he is. He gets the work done. He doesn't just promise to do something and then not do it. He does it. He goes through the details. He follows through. He doesn't do it in a secretive way either. He doesn't try to marry Ruth and and purchase the property and then go tell the other relative. No, he does things the right way. Men, I think this is a good example for us. If you're a man here in this church, uh, I, I know a lot of guys that will not follow through. I know a lot of guys that will not do things the right way, but try to do things backhanded. And if you are a single lady here and you're looking for a guy, this is the kind of guy you want. Hannah, you want a guy that is going to honor you and they're going to do what they say is going to happen. Okay? Just because the guy can get on the cover of GQ doesn't mean he's a good, respectable guy, right? 
You want a guy that's going to follow through, that's going to see through the details, that's going to do what they say they're going to do. That's what you need in a man. Men, that's what we need to be as men. And we see Boaz doing this. Sacrificing a lot for himself. Willing to take on Ruth the Moabite as a wife. Even though it's not going to be for personal gain for him, it's going to be for the family. Let's continue. Then all the people that were at the gate, all these witnesses, and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house. Notice, they don't even call her by her name. She's still the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring of the Lord. The Lord will give you by this young woman. The people are there to bless the marriage. They're excited about it. They still don't call Ruth by her name. She's still the woman. But they also bless her as Rachel and Leah, who have a number of the, tw- of the, the boys in the family that make up the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the mothers of Israel. And they are blessed. Ruth is blessed to be like Rachel and Leah. It says, may you act worthily in Ephrathah. This is an interesting word, worthily. We've seen this a couple of times. When Boaz is introduced in chapter 2, he's called a worthy man. In chapter 3, Boaz calls Ruth a worthy woman. And now we see this blessing upon them that they would act worthily. See, behind this story, behind all the drama, is really a love story. Of these two people that seem just made for each other. Both worthy, both honorable, both God-fearing. And yet from different parts of the world, likely to have never met. But God brings them together through all these miraculous circumstances. Not just through infatuation and having kind of a crush or noticing and being physically attracted to one another. Those are lame love stories that we tell. This is a real one of two people destined to be together that God brings together over time. That are blessed to be worthy. You understand if they're both blessed to be worthy and they're both called worthy, that means they're meant to be together. This text pulls them together. And so, we continue the text. Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And he went into her. That means what you think it does. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. Don't let the women in your neighborhood give your children names. Okay, I don't know where this tradition comes from either, but I'm glad it didn't stick around. Saying, a son has been born to Naomi. We're going to talk about this. Born to Naomi. No, it was born to Ruth. What's going on there? They named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. 
Let's, we'll just finish the text here. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nishan. Nishan fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. For the first time in the entire story, God acts directly. God's been behind the scenes the whole time, but now God gives them a child. God gives them conception. Remember that Ruth had been married for 10 years without having a child. And in those days, you didn't wait. You didn't wait till your career got further. You needed a child. You needed a male child as soon as you could have one. And so you started having children right away. So for 10 years, trying to have a child, she had not had a child. God opens up her womb. But it is Naomi that really gets the blessing. Isn't it interesting that they say Naomi has a son? We all know Naomi does not have the son. Naomi is the grandma. If you as the grandma ever say you had a son, your daughter is going to get angry. Don't say that. But remember the whole book. The whole book is about Naomi. The real question in the background of this story that still has yet to be totally answered is what about Naomi? Has God actually brought calamity upon her? Remember what she said from chapter 1. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. That means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. I went away with sons, I came back with nothing. Of course she came back with Ruth, but I guess Ruth doesn't count. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? See, they say the son has been born to Naomi because Naomi is the one that through the whole book we're wondering whether God has been with her or not. And, And in this section we find a total reversal for Naomi. A total reversal from chapter 1 to chapter 4. Let me give you a couple examples. Naomi wants to be called bitter. But her bitterness in the end is turned to joy. She's excited. She gets to, she gets to take care of this little child. She gets to take care of a son. Have that baby again. That hope. That symbol that God has been with her. Her bitterness turns to joy. Her emptiness turns to fullness. She thought she had nothing when she came back. I went away with two sons, I got nothing. But she is blessed by the people here after the child is born, where they said, Ruth is better to you than seven sons. Seven is the perfect number. So to have seven sons is to represent having the perfect family. And they say, no, 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 you're not empty. You have the perfect family because you have Ruth that stayed with you and now you have a male heir, a redeemer. Remember that when Naomi, Naomi said empty, that she was empty, she had nothing left. Ruth was probably standing right there. As Naomi just totally dissed her. What an, what an amazing thing for Ruth to now be full like seven sons. Testimony against God has turned to glorifying God. And what's Ruth saying at the beginning? God brought calamity on me. God did this to me. God was not there for me. And all of a sudden she's saying, no. No, God has been there for you. The people say, God has done this for you. He has taken care of you. He has not left you without a redeemer. Calamity has turned into restoration and nourishment. The text says he will be a restorer of life and nourisher of your old age. 
There's a lot of biblical debate about who the he is there. If you look at it in your text, look at it some other time during the week, it's not altogether clear. Seems like from the text it means the Redeemer is. That perhaps the child Obed is actually the nourisher for her, the restorer for her. But you could also read it that it's God. And perhaps it's meant to be read both ways. For God really has taken care of her. And think about this. One woman's crushing life circumstances turns into a blessing for all of Israel. That David, that Obed has Jesse and then Jesse has David, that's King David. The, first, the king of Israel. The king. The epitome of all that Israel kingship should be. And think about this. Jesus is in the line of King David. Do you know that Ruth and Obed are listed in Matthew and Luke in the genealogies of Jesus? This story is remembered in the New Testament. That Boaz and Ruth did not just give Naomi a redeemer. But through this story, we receive the Redeemer of Jesus Christ. This is David's grandfather. And this is Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather. And isn't it amazing that, that King David, the epitome of Jewish kingship, has Moabite blood. That Jesus has Moabite blood. What a blessing that this story shows that God takes this calamity, takes this difficult time and brings hope and brings peace. And so the question for you today is the same as the whole book. What do you do in calamity? Has God abandoned you in difficult times? I don't know what you're going through right now or what you've gone through in your life. Maybe it's not you. Maybe it's somebody you know, a friend or a relative that you have seen suffer more than anybody should have to suffer in this world. And you wonder the same thing that this text asks. Where is God? But the answer is that God is there. That we don't understand the suffering. I, I wish I knew. I wish I could tell you why suffering happens. I wish I could tell you how to get through it without feeling the sting of it. But all I can say is that God is with you in the middle of it. And that sometimes God brings amazing things through that suffering. And we don't always get to see that, but we know that it sometimes happens. We know that it happened for Naomi. That both we are blessed and the nation of Israel is blessed with King David. But we get the Redeemer of Jesus Christ through this family that has been saved. We don't always get to see the things God does to us for us in suffering. But the hope of the book of Ruth is that God is with us and God does not forget us. Let me pray. Lord, so many of us go through so much and carry so much weight. Help us to be honest like Naomi so that we would tell you what we're feeling. Help us not to bury it or pretend that it's not there but to deal with it. And help us in the middle of that to look for your hope. To look for your redemption in the middle of our life. We thank you. Thank you for this story. For the hope that it brings us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn is number 505. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Mm -hmm.